welcome back to season two of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Shea. Today we are joined by none other than animator and video essayist Steven to talk about episodes three and four of Paranoia Agent. We won't spoil anything from the rest of the series, but we will make note of foreshadowing when it's relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 7, Rolling. Episode 3, Double Lips. The episode opens on Maria, a call girl, finishing up an intimate session with her client, an otaku surrounded by anime figurines. On her way to her next client, she checks her voicemail. Her one message is from a woman asking... How long are you going to keep doing this? Maria calls back and leaves a message in response. I'm doing this because I like doing this. Maria goes home and begins a cosmetic transformation from sex worker to tutor. Surprise. She's also Harumi from the last episode, who suffers from disassociative personality disorder. While she changes, we hear a series of voicemails back and forth between the dueling personalities, each claiming to be as real as the other. The next day, on her way to work, Harumi walks past Detectives Ikari and Maniwa, who are flummoxed by the Shonen Bat case. Maniwa wonders if Tsukiko and Yuichi's cases are random attacks, but Ikari insists there must be some law of causation. In her normal life, Harumi is an academic assistant working for a philosophy professor with whom she has only lukewarm romantic tension. Harumi is prone to bouts of extreme confusion at this job. Later, at a psychotherapy session, her psychiatrist relays a message to her from Maria that Maria knows that she's beginning to disappear, but isn't afraid only wants to enjoy her life as much as possible, hence why she spends so much time sexually engaged with her clients. Maria wants Harumi to be happy, and wishes that Harumi could understand herself more fully, even if Harumi doesn't believe her. Harumi wakes up the next morning in Maria's clothes, but without a voicemail from her. Later that day, the professor she works with proposes to her. That evening, Maria tells a regular client, an odd-looking man named Masumi Hirakawa, that she's quitting, and he seems genuinely sad to see her go. The next morning, Harumi wakes up seemingly freed of Maria's personality and bids her clothes goodbye. Apparently, she's taken the professor's proposal. Unfortunately, while out on a romantic rowboat trip, she gets a call from Maria's escort agency, Double Lips. Maria hasn't quit at all. In fact, when Harumi returns home, Maria's clothes are all back in the apartment. Maria's left a voicemail, too. She won't be gotten rid of that easily. She's decided to go back to work. While Harumi picks out wedding dresses and receives a golden necklace from her fiancé as a gift, Maria doubles down on her sex work. All the while, each accuses the other of being the fake. Harumi's doctor tells her that she needs to tell her partner about her condition. 
which she ponders while visiting a calm, exonerated Yuichi. Harumi tries to haul Maria's clothes to a dump, but she's confronted by a mob of crows and becomes Maria before she can dispose of them. The next time Harumi wakes up, she's in her fiancé's office. He asks her who Maria is. Apparently, Maria gave him a call last night. Worse, Maria has thrown away Harumi's clothes in revenge, even the gold necklace her fiancé gave her. Her alternate personality's revenge begins intensifying, promising in voicemails and faxes to never let her go. Harumi visits Yuichi in the hospital again, and he tells her that Shonen Bat made him a victim, but also set him free. And Harumi wishes that she were also free. At last, she receives a phone call from Maria, not a voicemail, claiming that she, Harumi, is the fake. The two personalities battle in the street, each wishing to be freed from one another, until Shonen Bat strikes them down. In the hospital, the two detectives wonder if they should question her, but stumble across the sage old man scribbling nonsense on the floor. Later, Harumi and her now-husband have moved in together. Over breakfast, they see Hirukawa, who is a police officer, on the TV, saying that he's caught Shonen Bat, but in a sly cut, Moromi turns the TV off before Tsukiko can see who the suspect is. Episode 4, A Man's Path. (laughs) The episode opens with two passers-by discovering Maria and Harumi's body, and the subsequent media blitz on Shonen Bat. Hirokawa, Maria's former client, learns that Maria and Harumi are the same person on a call while traveling to his day job as a beat cop. He tries to glean info on Shonen Bat's identity from Maniwa and Ikari at the traffic station where he works, but no dice. Ikari compliments the way Hirokawa looks out for his family, and that the family home he commissioned is now finally under construction. After hours, Hirokawa hangs out with the Yakuza, who he extorts for money and frequently visits with prostitutes like Maria, who he insists call him daddy. In his mind, Hirokawa is walking a man's path, standing like a manga hero against a world filled with enemies. That last part of his delusion comes true when his Yakuza connection, Makabe, comes to extort Hirokawa in return, and threatens to burn down his home if he doesn't pay up. After all, the Yakuza helped pay for it. Hirokawa resorts to petty theft to get the money, but only gets halfway to paying the sum. In fact, due to his lateness with delivering the funds, he winds up owing even more money, forcing him to resort to even more dangerous and incompetent burglaries and muggings. Hirokawa justifies his actions by telling himself that he's a romanticized tough guy, like one in the comics that he reads. Even so, his mob debt keeps rising. Makabe tells him that his happiness is built on someone else's suffering and just offers him a pill to help him get over his mm, moral hang-ups. 
High as balls, Hirukawa breaks into a couple's house and robs their life savings at knife point. He confronts their teenage daughter, too, telling her to call him daddy. Before the story cuts away with a scream. Sometime later, Hirukawa mopes at a playground, feeling his mm, tough guy image of himself just can't be sustained. Right at that time, he runs into Detective Ikari, and the two have a drink together. While Ikari waxes poetic on the purpose of detective work and the increasing darkness and complexity of crimes. Ikari says that he used to believe that crimes have a motive, but the older he gets, the less reason he sees behind violence and injustice. Drunk, Hirokawa stumbles home and begs for somebody, anybody, to stop his crime spree. His prayers are answered, of course, by Shonen Bat, who fails to knock him out. Hirokawa gets back up and throws his shoe at the assailant, bringing Shonen Bat down, and then he kicks him into submission. The apprehension makes him a hero cop, and the media attention keeps his debtors at bay for now. But Ikari isn't so convinced they've got their man. At last, now that time itself has come to a halt, I am free to torment our listeners with an ad read. Ha! Nice try, Joseph, but you forgot one thing. The Human Instrumentality Podcast doesn't sell ad space. Think again, Ian. In my perfect world, the podcast is completely listener-supported. Why pummel them with corporate sponsors when I can use the listeners themselves? You don't mean... That's right, Ian. We've now launched a Patreon. So, if the listeners love our fine-tuned anime discourse, they can support us for one dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod it had better come with monthly bonus episodes indeed it does and for five dollars a month i'll even read their names at the end of the episode it's totally optional of course that is if they don't want to be frozen in time forever not bad joseph but you forgot one thing oh What's that? Nobody is going to visit any websites or sign up for any bonuses as long as time is frozen. You're trapped in this ad read with me. Touche. You've outplayed me once again. But I'll be back. And so will this ad read. All in the editing process anyway. So. Well, and Ian is our resident editing genius. This is actually my first time using Discord. I've been an absolute troglodyte about it for as long as I can possibly do. <laughs> but you've defeated it's, me. It's useful. <laughs> it's a very useful thing to have. Okay. It, is, it, it seems useful. I think so. Yeah. Um, Especially for, for Patreon. Yeah. Uh, for Patreon users, it seems like that's the 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 next step. Is you get people on your Patreon, then you get them in the private Discord. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, I've got a private been... Discord. It's it's nice to have. It's nice to have. I mean, I don't want to do 
Public discord, public discords are like too much effort. I mean, that's like you mm-hmm. know, I would have to have moderators and like I'd have to wrangle it or like not get involved at all and abandon it. So I think it's a lot easier to deal with like a more exclusive, you know, club of people. Do you remember when being a volunteer moderator on on someone's discussion forum on the internet was like a point of pride? When it was a thing that made people feel good, Whoa. when you felt you were like contributing to a community, does anyone remember that? Um, I didn't actually uh, communicate much on the internet in my youth, so I, I wasn't involved in those kind of things. <laughs> I was a f- probably for the best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't very what? talky on the internet until much later on in my life. Well, that's interesting because now it's like you, that's your your job is to be talky on the internet. Yeah, it's a funny way how uh, how life goes, isn't it? <laughs> I'm the worst person yeah. for that job. You're probably more well so we should socialized probably introduce our guest than we now, are. Right? We will. Int- that's correct. It is time now to introduce the guest on this episode of our podcast. One of my favorite YouTubers and someone who was really instrumental in the past few years in getting me excited about animation again after I took a long vacation. Uh, Steve-um. Hey, how's it going? Now you're just flattering me, right? I, no, I, I am being serious. I am flattering you, but I'm also... Being, I can do both at once. Get you a girl that can do both. Why not? <laughs> okay, let's go then. <laughs> so it's just to be clear, so everyone listening can type it into their iPhones correctly uh, and give Apple really accurate information to optimize the, their algorithms. It's Steve M, not Steve M. Correct? Yeah, there's no space. Yeah, I, I've I kind of, I might have done myself in a bit though, because um, with the thing with like Google is that it will want to correct my name as Steve N, like Steve N, like Steve M, like as as a name. Like so, sometimes, mm. <laughs> sometimes I don't know if uh, searching it is actually as easy as it should be because it might auto correct it to Stephen. Opposed to Stephen. Yeah, it's been happening to me a bunch this last week as I've been <laughs> preparing for the episode. So uh, I can, I can. Uh attest to the truth of that on the Google side of things, but it's your name, you know, it's, it's, well, I, I, I can't change it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too deep. Well, look, it can't have tanked you in the search results that much because, yeah. you know, I've been following you for now years, but now I've only just recently like decided to look on your page at your numbers, 8 million views on YouTube. Yeah, I'm guessing it must be. <laughs> I don't check the view count very often. Uh, it's actually close to nine million. Well, there views. you go. Uh, and we could do worse. That's pretty good, I think, in almost one hundred thousand subscribers. So my my guess is some of our listeners may know you better than they know us. Who knows? <laughs> that's a that's a mystery. My cat is screaming for a second. <laughs> I might need to stop her that's... for a second. It's no that's, problem. Uh, that's a common occurrence on this podcast. We tend to both we both have cats ourselves, and we attract a lot of cat people in terms of guests. It's true. So. It's I'm gonna I'm gonna try and stop it. It's an anime fan type can. thing. I don't know what it is, but loving cats seems to be. I think we've talked about this before. Like the only major animator I can think of who's got a dog thing. He's not even anime. It's Masamune Shiro, the um, Ghost in the Shell guy. Right, the Ghost in the Shell guy loves basset hounds. He's the only anime dog person I can think of. I mean, they do call him the stray dog of anime, so like it wouldn't be. I, I think there's probably some dog guys in anime, uh, definitely. In the new open office yeah, plan I mean, thing, bring your dogs in into the office while you slave away. I, hmm. I think like uh, somewhat relevant to the topic of conversation we have, like uh, you know, season three of JoJo's has like a dog as a primary character. That's yeah. you know. N- 
not to say that the, the dogs and Jojo's get a, a particularly <laughs> good uh, ending for the most part. They usually don't end up having the best time, but they're there. <laughs> they're in the show. Are there any cat stand users? I, I can't remember. There are. Ooh. Oh, sorry. Spoilers, Ian. No, no that's fine. <laughs> Season. That's uh, karma for me spoiling the end of of season three earlier in this in this season so i I, i'll take what i deserve it's hard to talk about satoshi khan with regard to jojo without spoiling the end because the end is what he did right this is Mm -hmm. this is review for our listeners yeah he did um i think it was episode five though it's debatable about how much control he had because the from what I, i remember looking into it at the time and i believe he I think he's the episode director for one episode, if I remember right. But like, it's a little bit hard to like decipher unless you go into the credits in Japanese. I think it's six. We did the episode as six. We would have been more accurate if there was a bigger section on JoJo's in your mm. fantastic Satoshi Khan video. How was that transition, Ian? <laughs> <laughs> well I was going to say, it's whatever episode um, that the guy is in the car and he... I can't, what's that like... It's it's the U.S. senator who keeps trying to run. Yeah, trying to run. It's that one. That's the most. Yeah, the most Satoshi Khan cut in the episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's absolutely Absolutely. true. We made the joke earlier in the season, which you can't have heard because we're recording before we release it all. But the editing bay is Satoshi Khan's stand. Maybe. Yeah, doing doing the world is how he figured out. Oh, here's how I'm going to cut all the interstitial shots. Out of everything. I, I, uh, I don't really blame him because honestly, like, all that shit is really annoying to make. So, like, I feel his, like, frustration about, like, establishing shots and other things like that. Well, you'd know better than we do since of the three of us, you're the only one who's, like, a talented video maker and animator. So for listeners who haven't put it together, Stephen has uh, a video essay channel on YouTube that has just really tremendously in-depth research video essays on you know you do some music stuff i know that i watched the new jabes video i liked that too but you know mostly animation and yeah it's it's mostly an animation channel the one that what introduced me to your channel was the satoshi khan video and i think that's probably true for a lot of people i get the sense that that video was kind of a game changer for you so could you talk to us about it for just a little bit in in a in a sense it's it was, I guess, to me, somewhat like a creative... I don't know if I'd say it's a fully creative change of pace, but it was um, kind of like a moment in the channel's history, I guess. A very, like, strong moment. Because it was... It was, like, the first time I was thinking about um, the kind of content I wanted to go forward with. And it was more based around, uh, I guess you could say, documentary-esque kind of content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and longer-form content. Those were like the two sides of it and also kind of doing a lot more um, less clip selection and more like it's not like this is the first time I've done that, but maybe more so like dedicated an anime video to like doing animation in it and drawings and the sort of quote format as big as I've done it at that time where, um, you know, a lot of the video is like majorly just quotes from the man's life and sort of turning those into a narrative in themselves. How did you settle on Cone as the subject for that you know, because it seems like you you aimed to level up in terms of the style of your videos. Why did you select mm. Cone as like the the one to do that new approach for? I think um, it may be a bit of a roundabout story 
because I don't, I believe at a time, um, usually when you come up with, at least in Western circles, there's maybe like four, it, it can change too, because like as time has went, the, these names sort of change, but there were like, you know, these four pretty big anime directors in like the Western circles you, you, you'll usually hear about. And those might vary, but like it will be probably something like Miyazaki, then maybe like some like Satoshi Kon and Oshi and maybe Hosoda or Otomo. These sort of like big names. Oh, the cat's screaming again. Cat's trying to say Ano, Hideki Ano. <laughs> oh yeah, you could bring Ano in there too, for sure. Maybe yeah, big fan obviously. I should I should remember that one, but you know maybe slip my mind since I've just been spending too much time thinking about it. But yeah, there are these big names, and I'd gotten people talking about uh, Khan before. What kind of happened to me was um, I'd seen a lot of videos about about uh, Khan in in the past, and I kind of was coming at a conclusion when I'd been asked about it in the past that I didn't I wasn't particularly interested just because I'd seen the t- stories like sort of done to death, and I didn't really know how I'd approach it. But what happened was somebody actually um, I have like a tier on on Patreon. You, it's not one I tend to use a lot, but it, I, I gave it there just for the option where like someone might like um, it's like a very high tier sort of thing that I was like. If you have an idea for a video, like if you have like a movie you'd like me to do a video on, like, you know, if we talk about it, like I'll, I might say yes. <laughs> I could think, you know, if you've got a, you know, it, I kind of try and leave it quite strict these days, you know, like so anime movie or something along those lines. If you want me to do a video on it. So, someone basically suggested I do a video on a uh, paprika. And I wasn't like the, the, the biggest paprika fan, but I was like, yeah, I could probably do it though. And while I was doing it, I was, um, I spent a lot of time researching and I kind of came to the conclusion through that research. I was like, actually there's a lot on con out there that I think is really interesting. And during the research process for paprika and picking up all this other stuff, I found a translation of his final, um, memoir, I guess his final quote, like it's like his, it was like his dying email kind of thing that he he posted out upon his death. It was it was sent to people. Um, it was sort of like yeah, it's like his final wish. I don't know his will to the people. And I, I read Testament. Yeah, kind of that, that kind of thing. Like I think it went on his. Um, he has like a blog, like or a vlog. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it would be a blog. So he has like this uh, Japanese blog, and yeah, someone translated into English, and I read the whole thing, and it kind of winded me. I was like, that was like a lot to read, and I kind of came to the conclusion at that moment, like, oh, this needs to be a video. Because I finished that video on Paprika, and, you know, it was fine. But, like, after that, and I read that thing, I kind of was very strongly dedicated to, like, basically creating some form of that as a video, that that testament, his last his last speech. And I was like, well, you know, I have to, I, that can't be a video on its own, so I needed to contextualize it. And I thought there's no better way to contextualize it by going through the man's whole entire career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I rewatched the video last mm. night just to kind of like get your thoughts back into the forefront of my mind. And, mm. it, you know, it's it's a really heavy thing to, you know, experience like the fact that you read it in, in its entirety, like no abridging, no redemption. Well, there is there is, to be fair, there is some abridging, uh, I will say. OK, like, it, it's because it was just so long. So I had to mm-hmm. make a decision. Most of it is there. But like when he, um, the habit with it is like, there's a lot of him repeating himself. So I had to make mm-hmm. the executive decisions about what the most important pieces were just because I didn't want it to be, if I had read the whole thing, which I did, I think I did actually read the whole thing in the booth, but I had to make decisions of like, all right, what are, what here is actually important? Or this would be twice as long. And I just don't have the, uh, I think at the time I was like, I don't have the time on behind me or the willpower to animate something that's like 15 minutes long or just draw it out. Sure. Totally. 
what I liked mm. about the things that you did focus on mm. was how much it was he was talking about the other people in his life and not so much mm. about himself, like highlighting the fact that he has like these relationships in the industry and, you know, him talking about letting the director of Madhouse down when it comes to to Dream Machine and all yeah. of that. Like that's something that we've tried to really focus on this season is because I think that there can be this conception of like the auteurist soul genius who's like the all of the work springs solely from their mind. But by highlighting that, you know, it's, it is a collaborative process. It is a mm. process that involves the work of a lot of different people. You know, it's really emotionally powerful to realize like that. Yeah. Those are human relationships. Those are human connections. They're not just the, the, you know, needing to do the work to get the work done. It's like, these are people that have spent, you know, as Joseph was alluding to like countless hours working themselves mm. to the bone together to make something. And that's, you know, to, to reach the end of that story and to sort of like feel the the weight of all of those connections that Cohn created throughout his career is, you know, it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. And there's there's something to be said about. Um, and I think some people in the industry would usually say that like auteur theory is like really very it, it's even less so helpful maybe in animation than it is in other places, because so much, especially in the anime industry, is defined by whoever's doing the cut in that moment or the animation director. And it's, it's hundreds of people sometimes, and there, there is a lot of individual freedom there w within, you know, within their rights. And unless you're like Miyazaki, who is so incredibly stringent about every like moment, and even though he can't necessarily be considered it, but he's just so dictatorially connected to every frame, where like most animation directors are not that way at all. Just because they don't have the they don't have the leeway to be. Totally right. It's it's a it's a clout issue kind of thing. Like Miyazaki gets to be Miyazaki, but not everyone else does. Yeah, I think Miyazaki's always just been that particular too. But like he does probably have more time and leeway because of the like he's not a weekly but he's not on a weekly schedule. Or mm. um, the the situation with Conan uh, is like Conan's films, uh, particularly. I mean, he said it himself as well. Like, they, they didn't make much money. They weren't like um. They weren't blockbusters in the same way that, like, uh, maybe an Otomo or Arno are. He was probably more popular abroad than he was in Japan. Well, that's a really interesting aspect of of his career that you you sort of brought to the fore for me mm. in that in that video. Because I sort of it's sort of funny. I've said this. I've alluded to this in other episodes, but I had a really similar arc, like to your relationship with Cone. But my turning point wasn't trying to make your paprika video, of course, it was sort of me watching your Satoshi Kon video um, because I'd been sort of hot and cold on him for, for a long time. Like a lot of this, like the cool thing about me for doing this season on him is, has been me processing my feelings on someone that I, that I can't just like gush about constantly. Right. But sorting through those feelings has been really, uh, I think clarifying in, in terms of like what I respond to in art and, you know, where I think this man's relative strengths and, and weaknesses are. Um, but what gave me the wherewithal to go through his stuff was watching your video. And um, I did have an emotional reaction to it, um, which isn't usually the case. I don't think in a, in a YouTube video essay, but I did have like a, a sort of a, a, a weepy eyed moment in it. And that was you reading his his last will and testament so not just to flatter you but just just to let you know like that was a really effective storytelling moment that you that you had there 
I will say it's a bit cheating because I saw what was already in front of me and was like, this is, you know, it's a piece of cake. Like, it, this is already in a very emotional speech. All I need to do is, like, at least somehow convey it to the audience with some imagery, and that's it. That will do, that will do all the work for me. Totally. Well, to give you a bit more credit along those lines, I like that you, you set up his uh, relationships with overworking himself and his health issues early in his career. Mm. It's like this little foreshadowing of, you know, if you're a Cone fan, that moment is where you're like, ooh, this is going to hurt by the end of it. Yeah, and it was, a surprise, uh, it was a surprise to me in some ways because I had bought the book that that came with. Um, God, I can't even remember the name of it now, but it was like his first manga. And like in the back, there is that story. That's how I found it. Like there's a little interview. Mm -hmm. You can't really find it anywhere else. It was just in the back of whatever edition I had. Just just like a little interview about his experience and being like, yeah, I kind of accidentally got jaundice and overwhelmed <laughs> myself and become a, maybe a minor alcoholic at a time. Hepatitis <laughs> B or whatever he'd, he'd contracted. But it's like a very, it was a very, it's a very poignant moment, I think. Just you know, making mm -hmm. this, manga that didn't make me a ton of money nearly killed yeah. me anyway yeah it's just how it goes i mean that's just the reality of being a manga i think in a lot of ways i think that's true but also i think it's true of just like being a a creator of content in the modern quote unquote the modern world because Cone's doing this in, in the 90s and the late 80s which is modern yeah. but, but not hyper digitalized in in general you know, I know that sometimes doing this podcast along with all my other creative projects has has taken a little bit of a toll on me. I, I think it's probably true of Ian too, who just spends probably more time because he's he's editing it, it it all, and that makes this interesting like parallel with the story, right? Because like I empathize with Cohn more, knowing that doing what he did took like a toll on him, and I you know not spend too much time on this, but I know that you had a similar experience because the top video on your channel is you is you explained that the the cone video took a physical toll on yeah it still on has you. <laughs> it's it's a little bit daunting i guess in, in an unfortunate way because uh, it's something i'm still dealing with now i mean it's been god how long has it even been over a year i think hasn't it since i made that video yeah the video came out in august 2020 is that right? yeah so we're talking a year and a half uh, and i'm still dealing yeah. with the aftermath of it now so it, it's a difficult one really um but it was definitely like a, a somewhat of a wake up call. Like it wasn't exactly the first, well, wasn't the first or last time something like that happened. But you kind of realize like how brittle you can be as a person by making a mistake because you had perhaps maybe the hubris or the, the arrogance that you, you kind of assumed since nothing like that had happened to you before that you could kind of power through it. Mm -hmm. And then because the, it only takes one time for it to actually hit you and you're like, oh, actually, no, that's not true anymore. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you're still dealing with it. You know, it's it's not my place to say what what is or isn't worth it. But you know, again, I I appreciate you know all the work you've you've done in in telling these stories, which aren't aren't often mm. told. You know, as an animation fan in in America, at least I can't speak for the UK, but as for an animation fan in America, I don't think it's until like very recently that we've we've gotten the narratives of like the creators or the economic impact of, of what it takes to make something that, that, that people love and adore, you know? And, and like by you, you telling that story, that's something that Ian and I have also tried to, you know, fold mm. into this podcast, try and take like a more social view, a more, you know, what is the nature of work? What is the nature of creation oriented view 
of of the media that 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 we love. I I think it's responsible. I think you know I think creators have especially now considering like the labor market around the world, like a a responsibility Mm. to talk about what does it really take to, to make entertainment art to make culture. Right. Yeah. It's an unfortunate Mm -hmm. um, side effect, but it's hard to get away from as a topic. It seems to be something that comes up in most of my videos now, just by the nature of what I have to talk about. There's an unfortunate term that kind of gets flung around and has do in this sort of community which is this idea of budget but like that doesn't really define what it takes to make a project because money does not make people draw faster like right <laughs> there's so much more to it than that like you could double these animators but like their um the salaries and that that's great but that's not going to make them twice the artists that they were a second ago if their schedule is shit their schedule is shit yeah i I really appreciate that you are open about the struggles that you've been through in particular, because I think, you know, you see all these polls that come out about like what the kids want to be when they grow up these days. And you hear so many stories about like people want to be content creators. They want to be YouTubers and et cetera. Uh, and to, to highlight that it's not all, you know, fun and games and it's not just as, as easy as uploading a video, I think is like an actual social good to show that like all of this creative work takes work. I, I try and be more honest with that, I guess, in ways. And sometimes you know, there's a lot of factors to it, obviously, um, you know, outside of time, because YouTube in itself is like a very, it's a very chaotic system for those. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you're, you know, predisposed to not being that stable, you know, the anxiety that can cause by like not releasing a video for so much time, or if a video is going to do well, depending on how much effort you put on it, there's a lot of like stress there. Like, is this title and thumbnail good? Should I change it? What? you know, these, these ideal moments of time where you have to kind of just like a lot of it seems to be out of your hands. And then obviously on top of that, things like copyright issues and other stuff that happened that is just another layer of stress. Well, speaking of, of stress and the, the issue of living one life and experiencing mm. another and to even draw a, a more, more of a stretch of a segue, going back to Joseph's <laughs> comment about getting a girl that can do both. <laughs> Maybe we should move on God to, uh, the uh, the topic of the day, which is sure. episodes three and four of Paranoia Agent. It, it's interesting, I think, that Steve, Stephen, that you brought up um, <clears throat> the 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 budget problem and the way that and the way that fans have have difficulty, I think, or at least for a long time, did have difficulty seeing what work comes into to what they make, because sort of like that one of the cone narratives, right, is his contempt for the fans. Um, and I, 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 I like the opening of, of the fourth episode of Paranoia Agent is maybe the most contemptuous I think he ever gets of animation fans. The opening of the, the third episode. Third episode. Double Lips. Sorry. That you're yeah. To. yeah. I, think right. it's, I think it's an interesting one for, for Cohn. Um, I don't know if he necessarily hates like the concept of otaku, but it's something that I think he definitely is interested in as someone who used to be part of that kind of world and his youth. And how, like, you know, mm-hmm. going into the animation and, um, you know, he he used to be in, I mean, how else you put it? He, like, he was an assistant on Akira. Like, he was, right. he worked, like, on one of the most highlighted otaku projects of a generation. And, you know, he, he got into that industry. But, yeah, I think um, the way he, what he deals with these characters is always, to me, interesting to try and decipher, like, what he's on about. I mean, and I think maybe he feels bad for trying to set a certain motion because later on in his career, you know, you the the hero kind of in paprika is the otaku right yeah i mean but, paprika but, it does seem to be sort of his like um 
we're going to get there later in the series, but like my, mm. as I've rewatched Paranoia Agent, my interpretation of Paprika has changed, right? And now I see it as sort of like um, the chaser to the shot that is Paranoia Agent, right? Like Paranoia Agent is the is mm-hmm. the straight whiskey, and Paprika is like here's a little bit of like sweet syrup at the end, right? Sorry, it was burning going down is the way I interpret it sort of now. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of like easy dualisms to be drawn in general throughout his work. Like there's the perfect blue millennium actress kind yeah. of duality and there's the paranoia agent uh, paprika duality. And I think even these particular two episodes make an excellent pair with each other. They kind of feel like Cone and his team and the whole paranoia agent team grappling with like the gender binary in some ways where you have like one episode that's entirely about like a a delusional woman and another episode that's particularly about a, uh, like a crisis of masculinity in some way. And even in both of them, even there are, there are more doubles like, like double lips. Obviously it's Maria and uh, Harumi are the, like the same character kind of split in two. And uh, Hirokawa in A Man's Path is kind of split between his his criminal life and his, you know, policeman life. So there's yeah. there's dualisms all over the place here. It's, a, it's like a constant thing with Khan is he, he really likes that idea. Like you see it pretty much all the way, even like in his early manga work, like you can see that in, um, God, what was it? <laughs> I can't even remember the name of it now. Uh, like his, his one about making manga. Opus? Uh, yeah, Opus, that's the name, isn't it? Yeah, like having those characters there, having the sort of uh, in, in between of these two worlds, these two characters, these two situations. It's just something I think that really fascinates him. I was going to say something that I find interesting, at least in this first sequence, and like there's definitely an interesting take on like you know the specific um, nature of the Oto- the otaku character, you know his interest in his plastic figures, and the, the concept of two D. I think this is perhaps also a sign of the times. I believe two thousand and four. Uh, there was a change in the. Uh, there was like a main. I believe so. There was a. I forget the name of it. But there's like I believe there was like a mainstream otaku show coming out around this time, that got huge ratings, and it definitely left. Um, there was there was talk at the time, if I remember right, where there were people in the messenger birds who were like, because if I remember right, the, the the plot of it was effectively around like I think it was like an otaku who sort of found love, and there was a lot of backlash to that where there were people who were like you know mm. denouncing 3D women entirely and just strictly for 2D and maybe even removing the term otaku from them because I guess it became sort of mainstream point of culture at that moment. Now, I can't line those up. Maybe that happened before or after. Maybe it was happening during production. Might just be a, a, a um, convenient overlap. Sure. I think that's that's definitely like the the uh, the societal tension that Cohn is playing with here is, you know, I think all of the the men that Maria has as clients in the course of the episode, we see these mm. like different ideas of like sexual fantasy in some way so it starts yeah. with the otaku who's like fantasizing about these like characters that he has arrayed around the bed as like figurines um and then speaks to after coming which is nuts like it, that is one of the more it, like brutal <laughs> so the sound design the for me was actually very interesting here uh because mm-hmm. i think that mm-hmm. sound design especially because i know that con was directly involved in the sound design in the series but like this episode in particular has a very strong sense of sound play like he uses the the sound of the the train as like the climax which is a very like filmic kind of uh situation like you, you might hear in like very godfather Hitchcock, or whatever yeah, yeah hitchcock um 
God Kavava, whatever it be, it's just like it's a very visual point, and even uh, maybe some of it's getting around the senses too, that the way they like focus on the shot, and even after the situation's over, just that yeah, the the otaku is is dedicated to the figures beyond the actual person, that there's like this complete mm-hmm. disinterest in the woman standing in front of him at that point, like she's just no longer like there basically, right. And in the other men that we see her with, uh, we see uh, we spent a, a good deal of time with Hirokawa and we'll spend mm. more time with him in the next episode where it has a, a bit more of a, a more vanilla fantasy of say uh, having her call him uh, Otosan, which mm. I looked it up. So if there's any actual Japanese speakers listening, I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. But basically, from what I understand is it's like referring to someone else's father. Like that's what you would call your friend's dad, not what you would call your own dad. Effectively, he wants her to call her daddy. I think that's basically the the concept. I think that's a good, that struck me as a good translation in a Mm -hmm. a series where I think some of the translations are a little, are a little wonky. Did you, I imagine you watched it uh, Japanese or was it English? So I watched with uh, subtitles uh, and Joseph, do you watch dubbed? I know that you've done that in the past for some of the stuff that we've watched. Only because it was interesting with Evangelion because I wanted to evaluate the new Ava dub. No, I'm watching. Right. So I'm watching yeah. it subbed on Prime and Prime has. Oh, interesting. The, I, yeah. And Prime has the uh, original translation. Stephen, it was actually your video that referred me to Andrew Childers's book. So she called the illusionist, which I temporarily got a copy of which is super hard to do in the united states you mean isn't it andrew um, osmond Osmond. Osmond. yeah osmond right yeah yeah i am he actually he was very nice to me i don't know if the story is public or not but um i might have mentioned the video uh there was no copies of it uh when i was looking for it there was only a library copy i couldn't get because of covid so i emailed him and he was very very nicely he gave me like a a rough uh, pdf copy of the book uh, for me to use Shit. It was a shot in the dark. I didn't think I'd ever get an email back from him because I had to email someone else who he worked for to even get his uh, contact information to begin with. But yeah, he was he was very generous. <laughs> that was the same for us. We did the exact same <laughs> thing. He was the guest on our previous episode. Ah, good. I yeah. hope he's doing well. <laughs> you see, we yeah, had a good conversation. Yeah, seems to be in good spirits. Um, and he and uh. I have been emailing back and forth since having a, a good old time. Well, I was going to say, so your your video led me to like his book is now like the core text of of what I used in my research. In the I'm research glad you found a copy because yeah, it was basically impossible for me at the time. <laughs> not not to bore the listeners, but I had to get like a public library share copy from like Utah or something. Ah, there you go. And it, it basically came in like a paper sleeve from the United States Public Library system that like in very kind library ease on the front basically said, "Don't fuck this up." You idiot. Great. I mean, I would have loved to do that uh, too if if the situation, unfortunately, was um, timed better and the libraries were open at the time. But yeah, that's effectively what I would have had to do as well. Just, sure. Uh, maybe from London or something. Right. Mm. Uh, I wish I'd have thought of email. I had the same thing. I didn't think you would email me back. I should have thought to ask for the PDF too. I honestly... Um, you know, if, if I could have done the library way, I probably wouldn't have bothered him. It, it was just that there was literally no other way for me to do it. So I thought, might as well try. Well, we've had the same experience. He's been he's mm. been great to us. And that's part of the why I think yeah. it's like really good for the listeners to have like our, our the, the authors of like two of our core texts here in a row. But what yeah. I meant to say was, I misspoke in the last episode where I said, oh, I, I don't think uh, Paranoia Agent is out on Blu-ray in the United States. When, since your video came out, since I started researching oh. for this uh season but also since having started there has been a blu-ray 
I've bought the Blu-ray. It's the new translation. I haven't seen uh, any of the new translation. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if this is this might. I, maybe he brought it up in his episode, but um, I never actually bought a physical copy of Paranoia Android. Out of, parent agent, sorry, out of a uh, principle because the BFI actually not the BFI. The um, the basically the British Board of um, Ratings. Uh, they like censored Paranoia Agent in the in the UK, and I don't. There's only one DVD copy, I think. So effectively, one of the episodes removes a very vital scene from it uh, with the hanging scene, which we'll yeah. probably get to. It's a later episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like mm. it, it was not in the episode. It's not in any British version of it. And I believe they have no interest of not having it on any later releases, apparently. Last um, people have been contacted about it. So uh, yeah, I, I, will no lo- I will not be buying an uh, official British copy anytime soon. Well, if, if you have a region-free version, maybe when I'm done with this, I can just mail you my American version. Um, ah, you're right. To be fair, I've, I, I've got my files. Um, the only reason I would buy it probably would be if there's any special features, but I don't think there are. There, there are special features on the American oh, one, and that is there is uh, commentary, but only on the last four episodes from Cone and oh. um, Guy, who does the theme song we love, the best theme song. Oh, Hir- Hirasawa? Hirasawa yeah. and Cone have Interesting. a pre-recorded, I, I guess it's like a podcast style commentary on the last four episodes. I haven't gotten to it yet because I've gone back to the beginning to rewatch to speak with you, right? That's fascinating. I never thought they'd do that, but yeah, that's pretty cool. That's the only reason to get it, I understand, because the, the reviews seem universal in saying that the transfer to Blu-ray is very bad. They say the picture quality it's is. probably because it's an early digital tv anime which means that there really is very difficult for you to be able to up it unless you have very specific tools probably ai upscaling and other like very expensive tools that you'd have to get the original uh with to work with just because there is no scan per se i don't think it's on film or anything like that i'm not well i can't say that for sure but i'm pretty sure as an early tv anime it's probably stuck in 480i or something as an original source file so you'd have to do some magic point being after that long tangent I think daddy is great. That's a good translation. And the third client that we see uh, Maria interact with, she's dressed up in like a field day, like schoolgirl uniform. Um, And so in the case of all three of the clients that we see her spending time with, there's this fantasy element of Hmm. not just having sex with the person itself, but with some sort of, and I, I don't use this derogatorily, but, you know, a fetishistic idea of something else that this person could represent or fill in for. Yeah, in I mean, way. in some ways, it seems that uh, is her, I'm trying to remember. Was her name Miranda? Was it? No, I'm, I'm uh, trying, Maria. I can't, Maria, that was it. I, I watched this earlier today, I should remember. But yeah, with <laughs> Maria, um, it seems her whole life kind of is around these sort of pleasures and fantasy. I mean, her whole... Her, all her outfits right they're all like fantastical different personas her, all her outfits are specifically set in that way and what I do mm-hmm. find interesting is the way they play the mental game that they have through the telephone the telephone is the the point into which their like minds link like you know they leave messages for each other over this uh the service right it's it's a very different kind of split than the one we get in perfect blue which I think mm. is a very like obvious uh, predecessor for this episode is a very similar yeah. kind of setup. Um, but in perfect blue, you know, we're watching all of it from uh, Mima's perspective. So we see her seeing, you know, the alternate versions of herself and all the, the reflective screens, like the computer screen or the mirror or 
the window of the subway train, all of that kind of stuff. Here, there is un- until a very pivotal moment and near the end of the episode, all of the communication is done by recording instead. Yeah, there's there's a clear instead. divide, which is mm-hmm. used in Cohen style to like cut between hardly. So there's like you know the hard cut between personas. And the only time you kind of see a, a slow transition might be the, the shower where, you know, in an early scene, you know, this is something that Cohen has done in some of his later works as well as like the shower is kind of this, um, kind of like you becoming one again, you sort of, you know, you mm-hmm. get your composure back together, you wash away the prior thing and, you know, you start again. It's a metamorphic space. Yeah, it, it's there's there's sort of a an idea of cleanliness of like mm. removing a false persona. And I want to kind mm. of challenge this uh with this particular episode, but I think upon the first time I viewed it, I very much thought of Harumi as the real quote unquote person. And Mm. that it's, you know, she's taking off the makeup. She's going into the shower. She's taking off the, as you described, kind of more like gaudy or loud clothing and dressing suddenly very like all these like beige and kind of earth tones instead. So there's the idea that she's like removing a false persona to kind of return to her her actual self. But I'm not entirely sure if that's how the episode feels about this character because the when I rewatch it now I more and more I I think that Maria is the the real person and that Harumi is like the repressed shell that is hiding the actual person inside. But I don't know how do how do you two feel about that? And like the split between those two personas. Steve, why don't you go first? And then I, I've got a whole thing for this. I, I think that's an interesting way. I, I don't even know if there's necessarily a true self. Uh, that might mm. be the, the concern with it. Um, because like, if you look, take it from her perspective, right, she's effectively being wiped out. And I understand why that's, she's so antagonistic to her herself, I guess, is that she, they're try, removing her stuff, removing her, her way of life, removing everything so that one half can get married and basically become in a very Japanese sense, what best, you know, a very traditional Japanese set of like what is expected of a woman, which is to settle down, get married to this boring man that she talks to like twice and just sort of live Mm -hmm. as a school teacher or perhaps even just become a housewife eventually, which is not what her more rebellious side um, wants, obviously. Right. And the, the reason I have this particular view on it is because the only actual evidence that we have of Maria uh, fading away and Harumi becoming the dominant personality is what the doctor tells Harumi. But in practice, what we see is, because we're watching the episode from Harumi's perspective, her perspective becomes more and more jagged over time. So it's actually Harumi who's beginning to fade away over the course of the episode. She's beginning to find herself in stranger and stranger situations and not understand how she got there. So I, I feel like it is a, a case of the doctor attempting to convince Harumi to like repress the Maria personality entirely in order to become the more socially acceptable, yeah. traditional housewife that you're describing. Yeah, you could say that like societal positions, especially with the late 2000s, which we'll get into the next episode too, are definitely like a real tone setter of the whole series mm-hmm. yeah and there is something um it it seems like these these it's, it's hard to tell how long the split identity has became a problem for her because we only see it from a very like temporal perspective and right what we do know is that in the last episode she was a side back you know, like a, you know the background kind of she was a, just a teacher in the background and then 
as soon as shonen bat comes into the position of one of her students, she's somehow infected by the shonen bat, and then the more paranormal and strange elements start to appear right then. Which it almost feels like you know the shonen bat may be like the virus. The, the it could be both the infection and the cure. It's really hard to tell with mm-hmm. it, but you know the, the um, salvation and the condemnation. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's only when she's talking to Yuichi in the hospital that she even. It's like having that conversation with Yuichi where he's able to say like, "Oh, I'm I feel better now because I've been you know, I, I've been proven innocent because yeah. now I'm a victim of shonen bat." It's only then that she gets the idea. And the idea, of course, being the whole thing with Shonen Bat uh, to be freed, you know, like Shonen Bat doesn't even really appear in the episode until she gets the idea that she would like to be freed by the same act of violence. Yeah, if anything, he's kind of the, the, the I guess, I don't know how to put the savior in that situation. Exactly. Yeah. A, a vigilante um, savior. In, in a sort of weird way, because there is something very um, subversive about the idea that victimhood can be liberating. But can we hold on that for just one second? Because like, yeah, I've, sure. got, I've got a whole thing on, on that too. <laughs> yeah, go for it, go for it. Because um, once again, it's, you know, Khan delivers a, like almost like a thesis statement. And in this episode, it's sort of funny that he puts Yuichi in there giving like sort of like the thesis statement for the show. But before that Yuichi scene, this series sort of like takes a turn. I, I see this episode and the Yuichi episode both as, as very interesting in that... Um, they focus on characters that have serious personality disorders that mm. are, that are real, that are, that are not like mm-hmm. a fantasy or a paranormal thing that's been made up for the locus of the show. Like narcissistic personality disorder is a real phenomenon that is documented that we have a lot of scientific knowledge about the same thing's true of disassociative personality disorder. And if there's an issue I have with this episode, because I love this episode, I think it's actually like maybe like one of the, best episodes in the show and maybe some of the best 20 minutes in Cone's oeuvre. And I don't think that's a unique opinion, actually. Um, based on my research. I didn't actually know this was um, a highly regarded episode. It, okay, so if you look on at least IMDb and you know... Uh, take that take with that whatever with, amount of salt put all, like. put all Put all your margarita on it. Put it in the margarita <laughs> yeah. glass. I'm serious. This is the second highest rated episode. Huh. After, I never would have expected that. And it's only 0.1 of 10 stars behind the number one, which is, of course, Happy Family Planning. That'll be, in, that'll be an interesting one to talk about. It's highly regarded. And also, you know, I timed it yesterday when I was watching it. You spent a, a fair deal of time on double lips in, in your episode relative to any other single <laughs> episode I, of the did series. Did I? I can't remember. <laughs> you did. Well, you definitely, you mentioned the, the, the sound mo- motif. Of oh the, yeah, the I may have. Telephone and using that as the example yeah. of how each episode kind of has its own iconic sound to it, which I, I mm. hadn't put together until you, you mentioned it in the video, but it's 100% true. Yeah, the sound design's really good. Cohn also gave a lot of quotes about this episode in particular because it's so obviously a callback to Perfect Blue. Which yeah, I could totally see, uh, at least in, um, like, it's a very close idea. I could totally see him being like, ah, I have this idea, but it's kind of close to something I've done in the past and probably not enough for a whole movie, maybe. So like, I don't think I can really do much with it. I feel that that might be the, uh, the concern because he doesn't want to make a movie that's exactly the same as Perfect Blue, I'm sure. Just because, like, mm-hmm. knowing his catalog is always, like, he pretty much switches genre with pretty much every one of his projects to some degree. 
totally. So to me, maybe there's something about like he doesn't want to retread making something that's exactly like Perfect Blue for no good reason. It's also telling that this is the first episode that he doesn't direct or storyboard. Um, mm. And we can and we can get into the staff here in a minute because I think the staff here is interesting. But before it just gets lost in lost in the mix, what I wanted to say yeah, is that um, I think this is a very Hollywood fucking depiction of of disassociative identity disorder. And, and that's not totally to the episode's uh, credit. Um, to the best of my research that I've done, disassociative identity disorder works in, in the sense of that someone who's experienced a lot of trauma, either like sometimes mm. emotional, but often like coupled with like physical abuse. Basically, it's a, a coping mechanism that the human brain does where you create a second persona in order to absorb the trauma. And that secondary persona acts in some ways as like, a defensive shield for the original personality of the person. Um, any uh, psychology or psychotherapist PhDs listen to this show, please don't at me. Uh, I am an amateur. I'm doing amateur level research and I know that, but that's the, the, the best that my research has been able to like. Yeah. Inform I, I wouldn't me. be surprised. Um, I would just say, I don't know if it's necessarily a counter, but it's probably best to bring into context that like, um, I'm not sure if I, I, oh God, I just watched it, but like, I don't, I don't know if they ever like confirm that's the, did they confirm that was the condition in the episode? Cause he's talking to the doctor, but I don't remember them using any specific terms. No, th there's no specific term used. So I think that's what allows the, you know, the, the show to kind of play a bit yeah. fast and loose because they I don't would specify. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was gonna say, I would just have to assume just because as soon as this episode's over, that whole thing is done. Like it doesn't come back as mm -hmm. far as I remember. And I feel that perhaps it's supposed to be slightly more paranormal, even though it does take the condition of like unflattering psychological portraits is like a dime a dozen. And I think in most like media, um, you know, Hollywood and I imagine Japanese media is not particularly like any better in, in that case in a lot of ways. Though I suppose in 20 minutes, there's not a lot you can do um, right. when it comes to fleshing out a condition like that. But I, I have to assume to some degree, this is supposed to be more like um, a dark, supernatural, paranormal experience, perhaps? Sure. More so than maybe it's supposed to be a serious illness. I gel with that. I mean, also the episode's very Hitchcockian, and Hitchcock is like mm -hmm. a, a noticeable influence on Cone, which is, I, I love Alfred Hitchcock. But if there's like, if there's a critique to be leveled at a lot of Alfred Hitchcock's oeuvre too, oh, yeah, it's, it's also it's, like pop psychology. Yeah. And um, a lot of it's, um, scandalism over actual realism, right? You know, psycho is not a realistic portrait of that kind of condition. It's more just a pop, um, scandalous reinterpretation of Ed Gein. Right. It, right. Via Edward Block's novel. Totally, yeah. totally, totally true. All, all of that is to say, I interpret Maria as the offshoot personality. I, in, I mm -hmm. interpret Maria as the personality that is like absorbing the, I don't know what you'd call it, like the sexual repression of, of modern Japanese society for her, it's, for her roomie. It's yeah. Right. I mean, I imagine to be a school teacher, she must have a pre-existent reality living that life beforehand though. It, it's hard to say, cause we don't know enough about the character to really specify like what was her true life. I have to assume the school teacher would probably be the life she'd been living the longest. And, and unlike perfect blue, you know, here it, it, you you get the sense that like, well, you don't get the sense. You know that this has been happening for a, a while because Maria has like uh, they have they already have a rapport on the phone going back and forth. You come mm. in and media's rest, and Maria's already got like a it, what looks like a successful career as a sex worker. 
in as in as far right. as that goes, right? Whereas like in Perfect Blue, you you see the split, like you you mm. see the process of Mima like splitting off her her alternate personality that becomes like a malevolent force right right we get the inciting incident of the psychic trauma that allows the plot to go forward here we're we're jumping into something that's already in progress as you said in media res totally yeah and maybe that's sort of uh maybe that's part of the the play here is that the less you know and i think this is something maybe to say as a benefit of the whole series about paranoia agent is it the less you know the better in some ways like the ending doesn't necessarily explain what paranoia agent is about and you just kind of have to like live yeah. with it yeah <laughs> I, I'm, yeah we'll get to the ending when we get yeah. to the ending that'll be that'll be fun but um i i do want to talk maybe about uh harumi's um relationship with her fiance right because mm. i i think it's a useful counterbalance here because my impression of the character is that one, I think it's interesting that it is a another case of a uh, some sort of power imbalance in terms of the relationship, not unlike the uh, the sexual fantasies that Maria is catering to in her job. Is that she's you know it's like a David Brooks situation where she's like this assistant to a professor that then ends up marrying the professor, which I think at least. These days is kind of looked down upon as like David, a path David to Brooks. Mm. If there was a whole B plot they cut where her fucking moral philosophy fiance is like a weird pundit. Yeah. <laughs> this is an interesting thing. Like he's he's kind of he's really boring. Like we get like nothing from this guy. Yeah, it seems intentionally so, yeah. Just because uh, the first time you um, meet him, especially like him, his first request being the tea, it's just very mm -hmm. like very assistant esque. You know, it's, there's a very like cold, detained like make me tea. That's like that's what you do, make me tea. And then afterwards, he uh, with the same you know the same cold detachment. It's like yeah, marry me. Like it's that same. Right. It's the same position with both of those requests. Like both of them, I think, come across as emotionally blocked up and yeah. repressed and unable like that conversation when they're getting like the, the wedding dress and doing all of the preparations for the wedding, neither of them seem to have like any passion for each other or for the situation that they're in. And I, I made a point to point this out in our last episode that in the very first episode of the show, we get this kind of like very pointed news segment talking about like the kids suffering from emotional repression. And that's what mm. leads to, you know, the, these attacks that they're uh, attributing to Shonen Bat. But what I think is interesting is that in this episode, we see it's not the kids, it's the the adults that are the ones that are emotionally blocked up and repressed in a way that the kids are not in the mm. show. And it's just something I, I found really interesting to kind of chew over is, and that's, that's another thing that I feel like is, you know, uh, Harumi keeps talking about, like, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And Maria is full of self-understanding and actualization by comparison. Right. Uh, so I, I think there's a very deliberate point being made here that the the real like adult world is the one that feels somehow empty and hollow. And it's the the underbelly of it that is actually the one that is uh, full of of some sort of life, whether that life is actually good or not. I don't think the show uh, yeah, decides I, one way or the other, but that's at least how I'm viewing it. Cone kind of um, he seems to really like CD characters, and you see that mm -hmm. especially in these two episodes. The the idea of these yeah underbelly CD characters, 
disgusting short men. I think it's like they <laughs> ones with very strange faces, animalistic in, in some nature. Like they're just like he seems to really adore them as characters. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say it's it's interesting that well, and this is something I think that is to the show's credit is I don't think it, it as much as the plot structure like judges Maria's chosen profession. I don't think the the way that the story is presented actually like has a lot negative to say about her being like a sex worker, which uh, in retrospect on rewatch was, I thought like kind of refreshing. Totally. Like you said, she's like, she's not only full of understanding, but like, you know, you see her roomie dressing up in the wedding dress and looking absolutely unenthused. And you see Mm. Maria dressing up like the track and field person, having this weird slimy dude kind of like sidle over to her and is animated in such a way where she's like, God, I love my fucking job. <laughs> it's um, a great transition right. too. Um, oh, it really, uh, yeah. the opening really, of the, the yeah, the curtain suddenly being somewhere else. It really hit me for a second. I'd, I'd almost like had a moment where I was like, "Wait, what? Where? Wait!" <laughs> like I was like, "Oh yeah, we're in a different place." Just because it was so, it is such a strong, fast. You you miss it, you know, so quick you might miss it. Kind of transition. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good stuff like that. There's uh, the both of these episodes use montage to really great effect. Like early on when we have the Maria voice message being left you know we get this montage of her out with all these various different men including one that's like shown in the reflection of a cab mirror Mm. like the right and then it we we were able to see the like the maromi uh toy like hanging in the mirror as well um and it's only later that when she gets into a cab that we get the clue that like there's the same maromi mirror that it's the same cab that she was in as maria earlier like all this stuff is like super subtle and fast and if you're not paying attention you'll miss it but like that's that's what makes this like so good is it's like so packed with information into such a short period of time yeah it's quite i guess maybe the word would be quiet at times like it's very quiet reflection maybe would be the word like like, you know it's not really spelling anything out for you too much you kind of have to sort of just make your own conclusions or accept it at your own pace Mm -hmm. it's also much more Um, comic i think than, than perfect blue is if we're if you know if we've we talk in the last episode how like my sort of thesis statement on paranoia agent in general is that like while i i love it it's probably my my favorite cone thing next to millennium actress it does kind mm. of seem like cone playing the hits a little bit um i think this can episode you, um, in particular can you define to me though what you mean by playing the hit per se though in context of cone that's a great question it's it's that he's you know, because of the the sort of the thing about him, like reusing ideas that he wasn't able to use for his movies mm. or that he couldn't expand to, it sort of feels like he's going to the well of stuff that he's at least. It, and correct me, Joseph, if I'm uh, not representing your point well, but this episode, like, well, it's like playing the hits, meaning like going back to the well and addressing themes and visual styles and like storytelling techniques that he used in previous stuff, but to a, to a new purpose in some way. I think you've represented my idea as well as I've represented it to you. So you haven't done a bad (laughs) job. I think to, to add to that, here's what I'd say is like earlier in his career, I think you can absolutely see a trajectory where every subsequent film is a reaction to the previous one and a conscious expansion of the techniques that the previous ones used to a certain effect, right? Like he, he does this like very rough, but stylish paranoid thriller and then he he does sort of like an Oscar Beatty type film 
that uses instead of just using cutting, like uses the super imposition and gradual changing of imagery to show a kaleidoscopic psychedelic effect. And then the film after that is less serious than than the, than the previous two is more upbeat, is more comic, has a more pointed social critique, but like also like dials dials down the psychedelia in favor of like purely morphic effects on 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 screen. D- like, does that make sense? Yeah, in some ways, I'm trying to. There's there's a point. I I, think, I feel like yeah, Cohen's directory seems to be a man that is given. And I would probably put this on um, Mariyama more than anything else, that like Cohen was given the position to really do what he wanted to do. And I feel like each is him expanding as an artist in some way and trying something else out that like, it's very rare. It's very, very rare that uh, someone in the industry like Cohen, who isn't a hit maker, who in Japan, if you want to look at it from a Japanese perspective on hit, Cohen was never mentioned at all in any of Animage's top 20, top 10, of the year, so like Animage being one of the biggest anime um, yep. books in in Japan, right? So Cone was never mentioned in the because each year they do a vote for like what would be the best of the year. Um, never mentioned in any of them. So and, and usually I think they go to top ten to twenty or maybe fifteen somewhere around there. So that's a lot of entries every year. Cone is not mentioned in any. He's never on the front cover of any of these in comparison to his contemporaries like Oshi and Miyazaki and Arno. Like he's never been on the cover of these things. He's a much more underground position in the Japanese market. But Mariyama gave him this such a wide berth to make the stories and change his position in an industry that you know especially well, any kind of industry like this, they kind of, they all like, you know, you, you do the same thing again. That's usually like the same mm-hmm. thing is do something similar. Right. And Cohen's position was always to like, no, I want to kind of move away from that to somewhere else. And even in his final picture that wasn't finished, it was, it was a family film. He'd never done a official family children's film, robot comedy adventure. Like that was, he'd never done anything like that. That was like way off the, the scale. Or anything that's purely speculative fiction, right? Like anything that is like, this is a quote unquote sci-fi story. Right. Yeah. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. I don't mean Cone playing the hits to be as as probably derogatory as it sounds like. Yeah. What, well, what I I've, mean to say is it's him using the technique, using his um, perspectives. I, I totally understand that thing, though. Also, I'm curious here about why that is. And I wonder if some degree that is because now we're moving from movie to television show. And that yes. means that the, the mm-hmm. format, the pipeline, the structure is completely different. I do know that if I remember right, the team here is mostly team from Madhouse prior. So this is probably people who worked on his last project lot of them and because of madhouse at the time had a pretty good internal staff on salary uh which isn't the case now but back then when mariama ran madhouse you had some of the most talented animators in the whole industry who would work on ghibli and other products like that because they were some of the best of the best and maybe someone's got in front of them who the animation director on this one is well i'm i'm glad you brought that up can I? Because I think now's the time in the episode where I do the big rundown of the rest of the staff. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Please do. So Double Lips was directed by Takuji Endo, who also did Golden Shoes, the previous episode, which makes sense. Like he, 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 these two, I think, also pair very well together, right? Um, right. His big credit as director is Pat Labor 3. Yes, yeah, so that's a Madhouse. That's the only Pat Labor film made by Madhouse, if I remember right. Correct. Um, based so what I've seen. Probably he means he's also, a salary staff member, I'm guessing, at uh, Madhouse at the time. Seems that way. He, his big credit before Pat Labor 3 is he was the assistant director on the Street Fighter 2 movie. So, ah. like, 
key in the canon of uh, sci-fi channel on the mornings in the 90s. Like where, where I come from as, as an anime fan, like immediately after Toonami, right? He worked on the X movie. Ah, yeah, I know the X movie quite well. It says assistant, assistant director, apparently to hear. Which is, yeah, um, that's with Rintaro, but also another Madhouse staple, which probably mm-hmm. puts him as a very um, solidified member of the Madhouse group. Totally. And Rintaro is going to come up later in this series. Oh, interesting. Uh, Rintaro is, is, does some work on Paranoia Agent. That's, I didn't even know that. I think there's a quote that I read somewhere where Cohn says that part of the reason the series turns out the way it does is that people kept getting pulled onto other projects. So he had to keep pulling other people from the office in. But that's that's the beauty of um, Madhouse in 2004 is that they do have people to do that with. They do have such a uh, collective group of artists that they can do that sort of thing. I think that's really, to me, uh, in some way that that position is really defining this series in this moment. Mm -hmm. Right. If you can have a bench that deep to keep bringing new people into the project and still end up with a project as good as it is instead of it becoming like muddled and indistinct is uh, that speaks to the level of talent that they've got. Also, uh, it's probably worth mentioning, I think, in some way that like the the look of Paranoid Agent is still it's not really a a million miles away from his prior work, which were movie productions. And now this is a TV production. And right. he's kept virtually the level of detail pretty much the same. But there is a bit more of a cartoony energy, probably that he got off um, God, um, Tokyo Godfather. Like the, the reactions right. of the characters can be quite extravagant. And especially with the more like charactery, scummy characters, they have really strong reactions in their face. Hirokawa. Uh, yeah, speaking of, I was going to say that that seems like a pretty good way to segue into maybe bringing in a man's path into our discussion. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. Did we? Did we get? Wait. Uh, one last thing. Did we go through the rest of the talent, or did we? Uh, well, that's what I was going to say. Oh yes. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so key key animator on I believe both of these episodes, my man Michio Mihara. We've talked about him in previous episodes. We talk about him in the Millennium Actress episode. So he and, he and Cone mm. have worked together before. Michio Mihara is, I believe, at least according to my notes here, key animator on both of these episodes, which makes Ooh. sense. Um, some of his previous stuff he's worked on. The Ninja Scroll movie. Oh, hell yeah. My yes, fucking yes, yes, dude. This guy. This guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, another, another classic Madhouse talent. Mm-hmm. Princess Mononoke. Jinro the Wolf Brigade. Yeah, this is all just like um, subcontract work that Madhouse would have done with those studios. Uh, so yeah, it totally makes sense. And he comes up in your in your channel too because uh, my follow up to this last night was I watched your little tiny Spriggan video. Ah, and he worked on Spriggan. This guy, it, it's so funny that these two episodes are like not action quote unquote episodes, but Mihara's got to be one of the best action key animators of of the last 20 years that I can think of. It's worth noting he uh, worked with Cone before, not just a Millennium Actress, but also uh, he did a little work on Rojin Z. Yeah, that makes, um, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably just uh, another one of those classic talents, really. He uh, will do one more episode in... Well, while you're checking that, just to talk about the rest of the team, I've been sort of on uh, Susumu Hirasawa duty this season. Um, I really like the way that the the main theme is 
incorporated into double lips. Like the opening mm-hmm. theme gets a few different variations throughout the episode. Uh, and that to me is another hint that the repression theme, because so much of what makes the opening theme so powerful is like the contrast between the bright, happy, sunny, like, uh, you know, wide eyed, huge rictus grin of the music and like the horrifying imagery behind mm. it, you know? Um, and so I feel like the using the uh, the opening theme as like a motif throughout this episode is like hinting at the, that theme of repression of like putting on a happy face and uh, over something that's much darker behind it. Yeah, and um, this is actually quite rare when you think about it because this is a television show. So tele- television show, the production is going to be very strong. To have multiple themes for one episode off a director like Harris Hour, that's kind of crazy to do on a television mm-hmm. show like this, that it's like custom done. It's just not usually how things are done in the industry like that. Usually you do your... From what I understand, usually the soundtrack will be done and like you'll give the crew like a bunch of sound fonts and whatever else, your little tri- clips, and then like you're done, right? And then it'll, like, there'll be a sound yeah. editor who will come in and do it. But for Hirasawa to be like specific that way, it's probably a rarity. And maybe just because he's such like Khan and him are so like acquainted that it seems he would be like more involved in the process to do that sort of thing. Right. And it seems like everything that we've we've learned uh, over the course of doing like the research for this mm. season seems to suggest that Hirasawa does not take a, a typical approach to scoring movies no. or TV. Just because uh, it's not so something he does a lot either. He and Khan have have like. Uh, this like long-term creative partnership, which I don't see a lot in, in animation. Um, and like, it, you know, what are the big parallels to that in like at least contemporary filmmaking? What do you uh, say? Um, Chris Nolan and, and Hans Zimmer. <laughs> yeah. Who, I mean, in an anime, I'd say it's like Joe Hisashi, right? And, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Miyazaki Joe Hisashi and, and Miyazaki, like having, right. I'm trying to think there's probably some others. Um, cause, Oh yeah. And, um, what about Arno and is his name? Sigaru? Sigaru? Um, I forget, uh, sure, the, the, yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but he, they've effectively worked together for a very long time. We did bring that up in our Shin Gojira episode. And I would say even like uh, the example I was going to go to is Darren Aronofsky and Clint Mansell have right. done mm-hmm. pretty much everything together. Uh, but we've we've spoken enough about to, Darren Aronofsky on this podcast. Yeah, and, and to be fair, when it comes to um, that's probably more common in Hollywood because that's sort of like mm-hmm. um, you know, having like a composer like Spielberg has um, you know, John, John Williams, Williams and stuff. Like that's it's a little bit more um, it, it happens a bit more. I think in anime, it might be a bit more rare to have working composer relationships. And I think that really comes from Cohn being like a huge fan of Hirasawa, like being such a huge nerd. You know, he gets him to sign his records. And even before he met him, there's like a picture of one of his albums in the background of one of his mangas. Like there's obviously like such a huge, uh, he made an AMV for Berserk, a series he's never watched, but he made one, he made the AMV music video for Forces, which I don't know if I mentioned the video at the time. Yeah, he made what? the he made a AMV music video editing clips from Berserk for the music video for Berserk. Uh, he's credited as the like director, I guess, of that music video. That is amazing. I did not know that. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, he said like Forces is one of his favorite tracks. So like he, I'm I'm pretty guaranteed he didn't watch Berserk as a TV show, but he had he did he saw up the clips. He would have I don't know if he did it old school style with like you know, uh, the film in his hand and like slicing it or whatever. But however he did it, like he made a music video for a show mm-hmm. just because of how dedicated he was. 
That's amazing. I have that, not that read that anywhere. <laughs> That's so freaking cool. Yeah, it's funny because it, it means that like Cone, despite his like pot shots at otaku's, is definitely one of us oh, he, in his he own way. Absolutely is. Um, I mean, he, I think his he probably comes from a position where a lot of directors do about the idea of um, escapism. Uh, that like, especially mm-hmm. in that period where. Um, I think he's very much against the idea of not living in reality. And I think you can see that in all his works. Like he really admires the idea of living in the moment, living in reality and not like falling into these sort of dreamscapes and these other psychosis episodes. He, the, the, the clearance in those his projects tends to be getting away from that into something more, um, even if it's hard, like it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. You even see that in his first short, right. Or his first directed, well, I guess first written project, which is, um, magnetic rose. The right. idea that the characters yeah. are tempted by um, you know fantasies that come in front of them, and and one character takes the route that leads to his death, which is to embrace the fantasy. And the other one decides not to and survives somehow. And by the end, well, that's that's a perfect segue to a man's path because in a much less fantastical way, we have a character uh, Hirokawa who is a cop by day who you know is an avid reader of this this fake manga series uh, called A Man's Path within the episode. I, it looks very sign-in. I assume kind of like a Fist of the North Star type number, mm-hmm. anything like that, like a very like that style story. But yeah, the, the idea of like what a, you know the, the the right path of a man, and this, it's very like beat up the Yakuza, one man army kind of story. It's going to be uh, adapted by uh, Takeshi Kitano eventually. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino will sample that theme song. Oh yeah, for right. sure. <laughs> Here's my roundabout Kill um, Bill joke for the day. I. Uh, I think that there's something in the, the going back to Berserk, there's something in the character's face that reminds me a lot of the design of Guts as well. Uh, and the Fist of the North Star definitely feels like a, another point of, uh, of comparison. Yeah, it's more of like a, a sign-in style approach. This sort of more mature mm-hmm. um, comics for adults sort of um, look to it. Yeah, I think that's something that like if some of our listeners maybe have like uh, a misconception of who reads manga in Japan and who like versus who reads it in America is that the idea of this like 40 year old, 50 year old man, you know, reading like tough guy manga in his free time actually makes a lot of sense. Like that's not as uncommon as it may seem. I don't know. Maybe now, like the the comparison that I was thinking about is like, I used to live in this neighborhood where there was this one car that had like a, like us Marine sticker on one side. And then a uh like a avengers sticker on the other right <laughs> and that like that was like oh this is this is hirakawa this is who this guy would be you know, you know it's interesting like, you bring that up um because i remember many years ago when i was quite young i went to like a comic festival type thing it was basically for people looking to go into that sort of industry you know when i was like 16 i was thinking of being a comic book artist and they had like talent mm-hmm. in there and effectively the point they actually brought up at the convention and i think it was one of the um i can't remember from what company they were from they were from one of the big to like comic book uh, superhero ones and they kind of said that like, yeah most of the people who read this shit are like in their 40s you know you know the right. fo- late uh-huh. 40s and 40s like that was like the concept like, you know the people who can keep up with this stuff have been reading it since they were kids at the time totally and it i think like the one of the points that it's making here is that it feeds into the fantasies of a particular type of dude uh, oh, right yeah. like this kind of like stoic suffer alone like take the hard path like don't walk away from danger and the, i think the the genius of this episode i personally i this is one of my favorite episodes of the, of this sh- of the show uh 
is showing the contrast between the sort of like badass, hard, you know, macho self-image and the ludicrous stuff that this guy is doing in reality. Right. Like, oh, the, yeah. Uh, the montage of him doing all of the breaking and enterings and like falling on his ass and looking completely ridiculous overlaid yeah. with like the monologue of the main character in the manga is just so funny to me. <laughs> it, to me, in some ways, it feels like a big cope as well. That like he's just like he's just <laughs> trying to channel some kind of form of like masculinity and strength that he just does not have. And the only thing he has is the comic book that he reads. Exactly. His life I is just putrid. Ties- it ties so well into also the sexual fantasy that we see sort of doubled down on here is like, and you know, there will be another layer to this that we'll get into on a, on a later episode of this podcast, but Oh boy, will, you know, yeah, yeah. that's definitely one of the ones I remember the most episode wise. <laughs> um, the, the fact that we see him with this, like this new sex worker and he repeats the same thing of like, call me Otosan. Um, cause it, it's this like an idea of like, he has to be the biggest, baddest man you know, he has to be daddy in, in in both like the bedroom and also in like the idea of him being like the tough guy taking care yeah. of his family by like building this house. If but I had to reality, assume, um, this would be my assumption, maybe to some degree, and it, it might just, I, I feel like his world comes from a lack of control. Like he does not control the fate of his family. He had, right. he's made a terrible deal with the Yakuza to get this family thing where he then becomes a terrible father by he spends all this time gambling and with prostitutes because he's he's a loser basically and he spends his time he's a police officer he spends all this time with the undercrime syndicates of the of people who happen to work in prostitution as we know from the last episode and he's a dirty cop he's working for the yakuza yeah and he's he's given them all their like intel and stuff but yeah he lacks any control over his life i feel i think he feels he's his life is deadbeat he can't control the night you know the, his family's um obviously probably doesn't make very much money that's why he's made these deals to his house he doesn't have a very exciting job because he lives in a prefecture which just seems quite boring and down he's, he's he's a lowly sort of um you know cop who doesn't really he doesn't do the detective stuff he doesn't do anything like that his life is very boring mm-hmm. and uh yeah the only controls he has are his vices which have gotten him into a huge amount of trouble Totally. Right. He doesn't even have control over that, really. Yeah. Like he he no. can't control himself. Like the Yeah, that's the irony. Down to the the very end when he's like begging the Yakuza to stop making him you know. Yeah, it's, rob it's really uh, horrific that they just keep upping the number. <laughs> well, but it, okay. Yeah, I, Hold on though. It's like, funny though. <laughs> it, it is it is funny, but it's also a shared theme between these two episodes, which is like, what did you think was going to happen? Like what happens when you take a loan from the mob? The same thing that happens absolutely everywhere that you take a loan from the mob. The number just goes up. Haven't you I mean, seen if, he had, uh, if, if he had the critical thinking skills, he wouldn't have done it in the first place. So I feel like you, there's nothing he can do now. It's, it's just like a, it is a roller coaster he's stuck on that he cannot escape. Right. Sure. It's interesting that this also is in media res because we don't see him build the relationship with the Yakuza. By the time we yeah. really meet him, he's already it, They fucked. just exist. Yeah, we just know mm-hmm. it is. Oh, I was just going to say, just for, because uh, I always find this kind of stuff interesting, I looked up exactly how much money in American dollars he would have owed by the end of the episode uh, <laughs> based on the conversion rates of uh, yen to the American dollar in 2004. He owes Oh, he got specific. Uh, uh, you got to know these things because inflation. Yeah, yeah inflation <laughs> it changes. It does. It's true. Um, 43, this is before the market crash. 
Yeah, this will probably all look very different by the time this episode comes. Mm. Um, Forty three thousand two hundred and fifty dollars is what he owes the Yakuza by the end of the episode. Oof. In 2004 money in America. That's pretty um, bad. I, I don't know how that would translate to the pound, but it would. It's a, I, I, I can get the chunk of money. Yeah. It's a lot. It's probably more than a beat cop salary in 2004 in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. Probably more than well his be. annual. I was going to say what he doesn't have that at least like Harumi does have in the previous episode is he doesn't have a character like sit him down at a point and be like, you know, this isn't going to go well. Right. Because at least Rumi has her doctor being like, you know, if you're getting engaged to someone, you're going to need to tell them you have split personalities. Yeah, the right? idea that she doesn't yeah. tell him is kind of insane a little bit, to be fair. <laughs> I, I, some of Another case strength. of repression, right? Like she's yeah, so it is an absolute impression. To I, I totally understand. The, like, yeah, she wants yeah. to try and get rid of it before so she doesn't have to have that conversation. Like the closest we have is Ikari in this episode, Detective Ikari as like the the... That's an interesting point, um, I was going to say, because the, the speech he gives is actually a very telling one for the series, I think, as a whole. Right. Because uh, there is no answer, but there is, if this is a question, and, you know, if, you, if you're a sociologist, you probably have the answer, right? But he sort of says, like, why do people commit crimes? And this is like a modern 2000s. He's a very old traditional detective. You know, the idea is that you catch bad guys and uh, you put them away. You know, there are bad people, there are good people. But realistically, that's not the reality of the situation, as we'd know. And he's talking to someone who is stuck doing crimes he doesn't want to because Mm. of, you know, addiction, vices, poor critical thinking. However, that may be where we we don't even know all the answers, but there is a lot of things that could be brought up. You know, it could be systemic poverty. It could be, you know, systematic injustice. You know, there could be issues with, um, you know, mental issues. There could be alienation, which is another thing brought up. A lot of things that you see within the series about people doing bad things that they don't want to necessarily do. But there is no answer given in the episode, uh, which I think is an interesting way of dealing with it because it shows someone who has an old sense of thinking trying to contemplate with a a situation, a crime he's in, where he can't really figure out why it's happening. Totally. I, I was reminded a lot of uh, Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men yep. uh, in that conversation, um, because which oh, the book only came out like, well, let me pull it off the shelf. Um, is it 2006, the book, or is that the movie? Uh, I've read the book. The movie was 07, seven. so let's see here. And it was 2005. Called- yeah. So it's probably being written like, yeah, co- coincidentally, right around the same time as uh, the as sentiment is the same. I imagine well, it's it's, exactly. the, it's like, the problem of modernism, the, right? It, yeah. It's the idea of people who have this like in, ingrained idea of a black and white morality being forced to, to reckon yeah. with like the chaotic nature of of the and reality even something like um, these stories, right? They do have very ethereal um i guess antagonist if you want to say like you know sugar doesn't really exist a character like that is like more of a film you know he's a fantasy character really Mm -hmm. um that kind of person is not necessarily something you're going to find that's not what the average criminal looks like or really any of them really and the same with like shonen bat shonen bat is almost like a fantasy It's, it's this this weird apparition that it's more by the end of it more it almost seems more like um a folk story than it is a real person Totally. totally. But yeah, I, I think Akari's presence in this episode is really interesting because the detectives are, are not really in double lips much at all. But Akari has like a, a really, you know, after all the crimes have taken place and the two of them are having this conversation at the, the ramen shop um, or like the bar, I guess, really. Uh, one, 
very good dramatic writing to have like Hirokawa coming down from like a PCP trip and having to hang out next to his cop buddy where after he had just like robbed a home. It's yeah. like, oh, this is like so much tension in that scene. Yeah. So Pause me for one second. Was your interpretation of that 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 just that he robbed the home? Because there is <laughs> there is that tough cut where he's about to like and this is like one of the such a dark moment in this series. Oh yeah. Where like he's he's cause he's robbing the home and the teenage daughter comes home. He turns around and he says, Call me, Call me daddy. daddy. And then there's the hard cut. Hard cut to a scream. Yeah, you can interpret yeah. that as 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 you'd like, I guess. I mean there are definitely horrible ways you could go with that. Maybe I'm of the mind probably that he would have had to scare them or tie them up or do something probably do something horrible. But how horrible, I'm not really sure. It really depends. Like, and I think, you know, that if, it, if it's that horrible, then it can't be shown on TV and we'll never know. I think it's, it's crucial that this is the moment that like Hirokawa snaps after that particular robbery. And maybe it's the drugs. But I do think the thing that Joseph is alluding to is a, a fair read of the situation. Mm, it, you could definitely read it that way. Yeah. I mean, he is yeah. definitely a broken man afterwards. A broken man with a lot of sexual, psychological pathologies we'll get um, more into but, that in the future <laughs> <laughs> to the point of like ikari i think has his crisis of faith you know at the at the bar it's i also think it's funny that he can handle his liquor but uh hirakawa cannot hirakawa immediately gets completely trashed and like has the the big red nose and all of that and ikari i was honestly downs. um i was honestly in well i was i was curious if that was actually a bit of a play on his part because he want he didn't want to um I guess incriminate himself by acting oh, awkward sure. or strange and that he may have been just acting up being drunk as a way to avoid any sort of a uh, question about why he was in the park in the middle of the night or what's going on with his bag or what he's doing, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. What I will say is that there's a great kind of another moment of subtle editing where they both get their beers. Ikari downs his immediately, like in one yeah. gulp and you, it cuts to Hirokawa watching this. And then you see him attempt to do the same thing, to drink the entire, right. uh, the entire mug. And I think that that's like another thing. Like there's this idea of like, what is a man supposed to do is like a question yeah. that Hirokawa is like dealing with. And so he looks up to Ikari. There's all of the talk at the beginning of the episode of him, uh, you know, something like, oh, I'll never be able to be a detective like you guys. I, yeah. I just have to keep my head down and be, you know, and he's trying to emulate the, you know, the toughness and the manliness of Ikari in that scene. And that's a really interesting uh, piece of character animation. And I wonder who did the cut. That would be an interesting thing to know if that was in the script mm. or if that was a character, if that was an animation. This is kind of the, the wonder of animation is to know that we don't have the original storyboards in front of us. I don't know who did the storyboards in the episode. I know that Khan just makes very dense storyboards. So if it was his storyboard, mm -hmm. it may have had a lot of details and points about that sort of thing. But if it's someone else's storyboard, that could be a completely different situation entirely. Perfect segue for Joseph. Yeah. The storyboard of this episode is also the episode director. It's Atsushi Takahashi. Uh, okay. Um, who I think if I'm, if I'm reading this correctly, does not maybe have as, uh, as storied a resume as some of his uh, co-workers. He did, however, direct a few of the episodes of Godzilla Singular Point last year, which is Oh, interesting. The best. So he's working at um, Orange now, is he? Mm, well, at least he was for that project. Um, he was well, yeah, also I mean, you usually bounce around. He was the director. Oh, was he? Directed a few episodes. That is, for, for mm. my money, the best animated Godzilla project 
that there is. The only animated Godzilla project I've seen is one of the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons back when I was very young. So that's probably not saying much. <laughs> well, let me tell you what. Don't watch the ones Gendo Bury uh, screenplayed. Those are those are not good. Um, but Godzilla's okay, singular point is, is pretty cool. Takahashi was also second unit director on Spirited Away, but one of multiple second unit directors, it seems. Yeah, big film. Interesting, yeah. though. Yeah, that he's a... Seems like he's he did some stuff on Yamada as well. So obviously he's got like oh and so yeah he must be Madhouse. I'm looking at his resume. I'm assu- ah yeah uh, so he's definitely Madhouse um def- uh, deferred talent I guess you could say. He's got sure. a lot of like I, he looks like a salary worker because he's worked on Monster Nana and all these other like very Madhouse based TV shows. But he's mm. probably he's also got a career of working probably as uh, salary staff or like side staff on things like these uh, 90s, late, early 2000s Ghibli projects, as well as stuff like Nazu, uh, which is a very mixed project. You know, Nazu being the bicycle anime that one of the, uh, one of the core members of Ghibli staff uh, directed at Madhouse, but also works at Madhouse. So th- you can see he's definitely got that in between uh, positions between those two companies. He did one episode of Space Dandy. Was that Madhouse too? I've never watched that. That is Dandy. Bones, um, but that would yeah, that would be Bones. But well, it's, it's kind of an interesting one because Dandy has people from all over the industry in it because it's a, you know, Watanabe's. You know, it's kind of like a it's a, a star anthology piece where each story mm. has like a different director. But no, Bones is kind of its own story. But like, it wouldn't surprise me him going to Bones, especially if he's um, a well-known talent or knows these people. From my perspective, then I I think it would be. He seems like someone who may have may have made the decision to make that cut since he storyboarded and directed. Yeah, it's possible. It, it uh, do like... we have a writer? Do we have a writer on that episode, or is it all just under Khan? All episodes are written by Seishi Minakami, except five and ten. So they're all by Minakami. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's just a great little thing, and the way it's animated is really good too. Just a subtle storytelling at its finest, really. Going back to sound for this episode. Um, going with your, again, I, I just loved your observation about how each episode has an iconic sound. That's just so good. I'm like pissed that you, you noticed it first. Um, Honestly, I think it, it's probably something Con would have said in his notes. Probably that's probably where I picked uh, it up from. <laughs> Fair if enough. I remember right. So this, this episode has the, the, uh, the Tycho drum as the iconic ah. sound throughout the episode. You get like the, mm. it's usually paired with like the manga within the show, but it, shows up kind of like any time you're seeing things, particularly yeah, from Hirokawa's perspective. Very um, masculine sort of moment, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of like classic, I'm, I'm guessing like classic Japanese hero type sort of archetype kind of feeling, yeah. I guess. It's also paired with that like um, very deep, brassy theme mm. that, you know, happens anytime he's doing something badass or, you know, tough yeah. looking. Yeah, and traditionally brass is supposed to be the hero's, uh, hero's instrument. Mm-hmm. At least back in like German uh, classical, where it all kind of comes from. Right, very Wagnerian in that yeah. way. Um, let's see. Oh, a few other interesting things that I, I I would like to point out from this episode is there's a good dream sequence that we get from Hirokawa when he's like asleep at the job because you know, he's obviously oh yeah these long nights. Where yeah, I, I wrote something about um the grain that was it was like mm-hmm. one of the few uses of like grain and noise and color in it. Yeah, it's a it's a good like cue that what we're watching is not like real. Uh, yeah, to have that kind of like CRTV, a CRT yeah, TV grain. Con, uh, like Con likes to do that. Like he has, he usually has like very subtle outs for when something isn't quite right. 
He likes to put that mm-hmm. into the, the visual iconography. And we get him, uh, Hirokawa, imagining himself in the cop uniform, but wearing mm. the robber's mask. So again, we get this like mixing of roles of like both identities kind of smashed into each other in the dream. And yeah, he the duality. Sees, yeah, he sees Harumi, but with like the, the messed up makeup that we saw at the end of uh, Double Lips. So it's, it's both these moments where both of the characters have these like melded realities, the melded identities in, in the dream, but not in reality. It also, mm. uh, one of the things I really loved about this episode is, is the way that the double identity is bridged by Maromi subtly in this episode, because it, yeah, there's you one see of the those, beginning. it's in the beginning. There's also a blink if you miss it shot, but he, right before he gets shown in batted his, his mask, he, uh, well, he doesn't actually get shown in batted, right? He, he catches shown in bat maybe, but you see his mask on the ground and it's not like readily apparent that like until you see it on the ground, but his burglar mask is the same color scheme and vaguely like similar to Maromi's face. Right. It's the same kind of thing of in the first episode where we see like the Maromi uh, washcloth like on the yeah, ground on the, uh, on the floor right before. Yeah, that's a really good observation. The pink is is a good you know, cue to kind of like get us to think along those lines. Maybe it's like a, yeah, like a visual cue. Mm-hmm. And you always see the Maromi right before Shonen Bat shows up. Yeah, right. Uh, or in the direct aftermath, as in the case of the, the opening of uh, A Man's Path, we see the woman wearing the Maromi shirt when they find Harumi on the ground after she's yeah. attacked by Shonen Bat. Yeah, right. the Otaku who then comes back in the, the third episode. Right. Yeah. That's, that's another case where we're sort of linking him in double lips with, cause we've seen him in the first episode wearing the, uh, the Maromi mm. shirt as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, th- th- that's the big plot point that we finally, like we get the capturing of Shonen Bat apparently. Uh, and I love how it's set up over the course of these two episodes where we get it like jumping ahead at the end of double lips and then doubling back to see how it happened in a man's path. I think that's really, really good storytelling. Yeah. The playing with time is so good here. Yeah, even stuff like, I'm thinking about the sound play in general in terms of like, um, Shonen Bat is just defined by his roller skates so well. And they even use that as a, like a plot point in episode one where there's that moment of like, she has like PTSD when she hears the bats and she realizes that it's just like having these visions, like having an audio cue. In fact, maybe that's a Japanese horror thing too. Um, having a visual cue because it's something they do in like The Grudge as well. Like having like the, the being able to hear something before you see it is like really, sure, yeah. really key. That, uh, that goes back to Val Luton actually that's we talked about this in the last episode too but that's a thing that val luton used in a lot of his uh rko horror films that he produced in the 30s um the most the most popular one you'd see is the original cat people not the one with the top five dave bowie song in it uh Um, yeah so that's like 30 1930 is it 31-ish 34 like happy 33 maybe here i am right, around that time about. i think i know the one because there's like the the bus that sounds like a cat isn't it it's not what they do exactly that's the big that's the big cue and and he'll do that later in in other movies where there'll be a sound cue or a, a shadow projected on the wall and then you know because that was a way of getting around the code right is like you never yeah. show and, and the budget you never show the monster you never show what's actually mm-hmm. uh, usually it would look quite silly at that time <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, we also get like a really good music cue that gets repeated. And oh, yeah, the thing it that always comes is like the, 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 like the jangling bell kind of sound that mm. we have associated with Shonen Bat. And I love how, you know, by this point, 
we've now seen four episodes that portray the shonen bat cycle pretty straightforwardly like character enters stressful situation desires a way out shonen bat shows up hits them suddenly they're free and it's at this point that we now break that pattern by having this sort of ludicrous cartoonish image of you know hirakawa chasing him down and like yeah. stomping this kid out in the street probably still high on his pcp or whatever <laughs> right exactly about. It flips the dynamic, and uh, I guess it will probably come to f- fruition in the later episodes. But maybe these three stories, these uh, I think these three episodes, they they're all connected to the specific, um, you know, shown in bat that they all kind of have a specific feeling to them. I wonder if that's supposed to be intentional, because that that dynamic is really key to that version. Building building up that pattern mm. only to break it at this moment yeah. feels like a very deliberate kind of like big picture idea of how to to build the tension of the show because it's just when we start to think we figure out like yeah. what the rules are that we now have this moment where like the monster is suddenly deflated into just being some punk you know yeah you can it, it feels like a deliberate choice. <laughs> when you kind of realize that oh if it well if it was a real sixth grader they wouldn't be very strong when you think about it <laughs> if they're not taking down kids or people who are having like psychotic breakdowns maybe it doesn't go so well I don't know, man. I've seen some big sixth graders out there recently. I don't know what they're feeding these kids. Um, Well, this one isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Now I sound like Satoshi Kon, the children today. I was going to say, because it it sort of does feel like we're winding to like a conclusion about these episodes Mm. or or, or at least an anticipation of of what's to come now that we've talked about how the pattern's been broken. Um, Mm -hmm. But I did want to underline a theme that that Ian and I began to draw in the last episode and that I think is going to continue throughout Paranoia Agent, which is um, one of the great strengths of this show. And Stephen, I'd I'd love to know if you agree or disagree with this assessment. Mm. I I think that Cone was a remarkable predictor of culture. And, and I think in Paranoia Agent specifically, the, the episodes feel more uh, contemporary in a way or more relevant now than they did when I first watched them, when it when it at least aired on Adult Swim in the United States. Um, you know, I thought the Golden Shoes episode was uh, really strongly predictive of, of cyberbullying, but it existed before mm-hmm. like elementary school kids had Facebook, let alone TikTok. Right. And, and, and a lot of the anxieties of these and tensions of these two episodes do seem contemporary. Um, you know, in the last one, we're now in the era of OnlyFans, right? I have right. more associates or friends who lead double lives as sex workers now than I ever thought I would have in in my life, right? So it, it, in, a, in a way like that, I think has humanized Maria for me more since, right? And for me, this episode, not just the like, you know, it seems like there's a lot of crises of masculinity happening in the world right now. Uh, we're recording this right after Russia's invaded Ukraine, so interpret that connection how you will. Uh, mm. But the 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 desire for home ownership. Oh as, yeah, as a, as yeah. a social goal, as a status symbol, that that's the big thing that they keep threatening that the Yakuza keep threatening Hirakawa with. It isn't oh you lose your job, oh we'll beat you up. It's your we'll beautiful homes. We'll burn down your house. Yeah, I, right. I would say. Um, the, 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 there's certainly things that he's done that are very predictive, although I feel there may be um, there may be a trick to this. And what I can see is that some of it might be like cultural in sense of like um, some things happened in Japan, maybe a little faster, a little like a little quicker than they did in the, in the West. Like mm-hmm. there's talk of, I, you know, I've been going through these 
stuff with uh, like Arno. You know, there's talk of like uh, internet forums in like I guess '96 or something when you know post um, Ava. I think there's talk in the interviews about you know he, he compares these sort of internet forum talks uh, to like uh, bathroom stools. You know, people just write shit on the bathroom stools, so they just like trashy shit. And um, maybe that that's like that Japan may have jumped on some of those a little earlier. Maybe some of them were like novelties. I, I feel like in a way, Perfect Blue is playing into what would be like novelty killers to some degree. Like you see it with like maybe Missing right. Call or something like that with this like mobile phone horror, Japanese horror film where, you know, the mobile phone kills you after it rings or you could say maybe right. Ringu as well, where it's like, you know, it's the VHS, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the rental. These are like, there's like novelty murders. It just happened to be that the internet became less of a novelty and more of a part of our lives going forward. But maybe some of it also could be that these cultural problems that these shows talk about and happen in these contexts, even if they were slightly novel back then, they just didn't go away. They've only gotten more predominant as time has went past and that the issues people have been facing for the last 20, 30 years are, haven't changed. They're still the same and they've only become more predominant as culture has moved faster and more digital and become bigger in that way where you can share it. And, and uh, yeah, I, I feel... Yeah, definitely in some ways predictive, but in ways that I don't think he could have possibly understood at the time. I think it's just the way things went. Totally. Yeah, I, I think like the other point of comparison that I've I've had rewatching the series for this episode is Uncut Gems, uh, just because mm. of the constantly escalating debt and the kind of uh, safety I was thinking, uh, yeah, the safty bro is sort of like that internal um, just dread for a character who just yeah. keeps fucking up. They both have an eye for like, as you described it, like really grody looking dudes and like particularly like character actor looking kind of guys. And, yeah. And, um, but even like that, that movie takes, it's like a period piece. It takes place in the early 2010s, like immediately following mm. like the specific games crash. were played and all that. Yeah. 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 I, I think that that sense of like rushing to grab whatever money you can following like the housing market collapse in America. Uh, if you sort of think about that like in the point that joseph made like the the degree to which this episode is all about owning a home and the fact that he has to take the money from a family that is saving up to buy a home in order to preserve his own feels like yeah it whether it's intentional or not watching it now it, it's hard to not dis yeah. uh, disassemble it from those kind of because uh the housing crisis in japan i mean i believe i th as far as i understand it like one of the first crash in japan uh, happened in i think it's 91 happened because mm -hmm. of loan sharks well it was like a lot of factors happened you know the cold war collapsed you know then america inflation changed and stuff like that there was a lot of factors that were happening at that time but one of them was um around loan sharks who um you know the, the crash happened because a lot of loan sharks were giving out money i believe it was because of um property at the time but they like busted the market effectively because of all these loan shots giving out these loans and that destroyed everything at the same it all came tumbling down around that position yeah. and i Very guess it's interesting story <laughs> yeah we've all heard right um but here, I suppose you could say that it's it's not necessarily that they don't have a house, right? But they're looking to get a bigger house, which is very like commercial, mm -hmm. idealistic version. It's not that they we can't afford to have a house. Maybe they're in an apartment. We don't know. That's the kind of beauty. We don't really know what their standard is. We can assume to some degree they might be already have a house at that time. Like the housing market in Japan is different than it is in the states, and there are different rules. But it, the idea of be getting something more idyllic, I think the, these characters are all looking. I guess you could say that they're all kind of looking towards a fantasy, right? Like the perfect house. Totally. It's not just yes. a house. It's the perfect house. It's the best house you could possibly want. Well, it's the control thing you wanted. It's, it's not just any house. It's my house. 
right? That's the other thing is like yeah. ownership is control, right? This is a man oh, yeah. who doesn't have control of his life. That's that's in a sense the the rea- the realization of the fantasy that he's aspiring. I, yeah, I can't be a good father, but I can be a, big, a good provider. And you maybe see that like those social realities happen in all three stories. Uh, you could say the 2000s were a period of, um, especially for, for Japanese kids, the 2000s were a period where the, the, it was like a run to the top. There was a lot of like competitive, and you can see that in some of the media that was coming out at the time, like with Battle Royale and this stuff where like, you know, you have to mm. fight to get into universities. You have to fight to get into college. Mm. And what do we have? We have a kid who was an overachiever. He's a great sportsman. He's number one in the class and everything starts falling apart for him. He can't be class president. Why does he want to be class president? Probably because it would look good on his um uh, his form to get into bigger schools later on in his life. Like, totally, be, I was yes. a class president. Yeah. I have number one grades. I was this part of this team. I was like the, the head of the baseball team, whatever it would be. These are all factors for his future. And I think they're all coming apart all at once because of the implication he could be this other person. And with uh, this, this episode three, two, with, um, you know, the perfect family, right? The, the idea of getting married, having this job, like that kind of thing. It's all idyllic fantasies and positions for their future or whatever. All three of those characters. Yeah, that's really astute. I really like that mm. observation and tying those all to the like material conditions of the time is, is mm. yeah, very insightful. The, the last thing I want to say before we close this up is just to, to leave a note about Ikari picking up the matches at the mm. end of the episode. And that seems to me like this is a great thread that gets drawn throughout the rest of the show is the idea of perhaps Ikari beginning to approach his own type of escapist fantasy about like him mm. not being able to understand the modern world in the way that we described earlier and reaching for something from the past, something that he supposedly let go, like supposedly he quit smoking. So why yeah, is he and, holding uh, on to these matches? It's also probably worth mentioning there. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but like smoking rates in Japan are really high, like really, especially for men, like really, really mm-hmm. high. Even now, like the, the percentage of men that smoked in Japan was, especially in the old days, so high. Uh, you still see like Miyazaki still smokes, even now, like even mm-hmm. though his, you know, his, his friend died of uh, conditions somewhat relating to them to some degree and had to quit smoking a couple years beforehand, but he's still, he's still going. But right, yeah, so like maybe that's oh, another men, another kind of like masculine ideal that we're yeah we're it's definitely a lot lower at. in women uh you know the mm-hmm. smoking was like a rebellious trait and like you'd see like the rebel like um you know like the what would you call them um like you know the, the rebellious out. high yeah the delinquent the delinquent yeah. um girls you know they they would smoke like that would that would be the trope con was a smoker too wasn't he yes yes he was i believe so yeah i mean a lot of these directors are yeah i wanted to make a note of the that thing with Akari because it'll, it'll be very important later. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, um, also like the matchbook, that's quite a classic, like detective thing going back to yeah. the thirties. He's playing with the genre here. Right. And, yeah. and he's, and he's showing you, uh, you know, paranoid agent, I think at, at, at times is so kaleidoscopic and, and in it's like baton changing, you know, braided narrative structure, it plays with different genres. And I think at times that's part of the reason why it's, it can be hard for people to grasp onto it is because they don't know exactly what I'm watching. And I think in, in, in this episode with Morikari, with, uh, you know, the smoking trope, he's zeroing in on the film noir elements. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you made the point in your video that it, that it, it aired on the same network as Twin Peaks and there's a certain Twin Peaksiness. about it right he's beginning to anchor it 
anchor it with Akari the anchor. He's beginning to anchor it back down into like, okay, this is in some ways a police procedural narrative. And, and you know, that this episode ends with a cop catching Shonen bat, right. Is, is yeah. sort of an indicator of where it's going to go, go next. Cause in, in their own weird way, I think the next two episodes are, are very like law and order in, in some ways. Totally. Yes. That's a really good setup. Uh, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to get to, to those two episodes as well. But for now, I think we should probably start closing the door on this one. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, um, one of the points I had about, and I, I guess I sometimes have mixed feelings about Paranoid Agent. I think there's definitely a lot of great stuff there. The one feeling I had going through some of it, and I think this is, when you look at it, and this is maybe a problem with just the idea of looking at it episodically, that um, I feel like the limited time space of 20 minutes does not do cons his his uh, talent, I guess, for like telling his overarching stories that use psychological stuff. I feel like it's somewhat not enough time for him always. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, you know, the preference for what episodes people enjoy can go up and down. I didn't even know that um, episode three was such a well-liked episode because I remember the first time I watched it, I was quite tempered on it just because I felt like that limited time was really effective of being able to push the psychological aspects as far as his other versions of that story. Though I do appreciate it on a lot of levels. And I think when rewatching it, I think there's definitely other elements to see with it. It's the threads, I think, that really make Paranoid Agent interesting. That there are very, it is episodic to a degree, but the threads are there if you want to look at them and how it all connects and how they all bleed into each other and how they might come back later. I think that's what really Paranoid Agent can do that none of movies can. I take your point about the format, um, you know, because it's interesting. You're working now. Your next video is supposed to be about, about Hideaki Anno. It's interesting. Our, it, yeah. Your your trajectory and our trajectory is is uh, like a perpendicular, right? We began mm. with Anno, not doing a whole career retrospective, but now we're now we're doing Con. But while we were talking about Evangelion, we transitioned from you know the TV medium into into film. And mm. personally, while I while I you know, like some of the movies a lot. Um, I think Anno is someone who like understood the episodic format brilliantly and, and, and at times like really made fine art out of like a television episode with a commercial break in the middle. Which is interesting because of how, uh, how Con experienced TV animation was to him. It seems to be like a complete nightmare. Uh, right. that like nothing was planned or if it was they changed it or they had to so many so many issues all the time if that would be nadia or ava just like these these nightmares even um his and his what do they call it carrie Kano would be the japanese term his and his uh her his and her circumstances all of them had like nightmarish problems with uh production in some degree like if that would be you know having to tick off from NHK, like, take off, like, oh, you can do this, you can do this, you can't do that, you can do this, or being like, no, the scripts you're giving us NHK are shit, so we're going to completely change them, and uh, not tell you until last minute, so you can't make us change back. Just, like, stuff like that happening all the time, or losing stuff, apparently, that happened, allegedly happened in Ava, like, people losing cuts or frames from the head studios and not being able to do the ending they technically wanted. It's just a lot, a lot happening. Maybe totally. it's a miracle that it all came out correct at the end, but that's probably down to the staff and circumstances anyway. A miracle is a good way to put it, I would say. Good. <laughs> to be fair, any project is a... <laughs> I think any project, especially when you're dealing with a lot of people, is kind of a miracle, but if it ever gets finished. That is, that is a fucking fact. But even, yeah. even so, 
you know, a film mm. is also like a very massive project. And it, oh, yeah, the I, same I way. take your, I take your point that it does kind of seem to me that, that Cone, and maybe this is because of his influences, right? But I think he just like understood the film format in a more intrinsic way than maybe he does like episodic. Yeah. Television. And it might be time as well, just because, um, it seems to me that you'd, it's hard to say exactly, but usually, you know, a movie, you'd have more time to get everything together and you wouldn't have that weekly deadline that would affect you. So, you know, depending on how much pre-production you had on the, the series, that could really change everything. Well, speaking of, of minor mm. miracles done with working with other people, I want to thank you so much for coming on uh, <laughs> to talk to us about Cone. It's been yeah. an awesome conversation. I know that you, we've mentioned your Patreon earlier in the episode, but if you want to give any more details about uh, what you're working <laughs> on and how to help. Uh, all right, let me see. So is it Patreon slash Stephen with five M's because that's me yep. being difficult. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I took that name over. Like, I wonder if I could have got one M. That might mean like I could have made my life easier. Yeah, effectively, what I've done lately on it, it's usually well. I've I've started a series of production diaries for the the Arno video because I want to keep people up to date with them. I've been recording something every Sunday, and then at the end of the month, I I, I slap that into like one video. The idea at the end would be that um, when I have all those production things together. I'd probably put them into a big video and call it how I make videos so I can release that to things. Cause that's a question I sometimes get, you know, how do I do these productions? And I think no better way to show them in real time and just go through it and then cut that and maybe edit it a bit more, polish it a bit and show people. But outside of that, um, hopefully by the end of this weekend, uh, part one, cause I tend to release videos in pieces for those people who are funding them. Mm-hmm. So I will, you know, that's my production method would be like, Right now, I've got 10 minutes of the video. That is, um, I've, I've written more of it, but the first 10 minutes of it is basically done outside of having some issues with my wrist. The last things I have to do with drawings. And because it was been a bit iffy, I've had to push it back the last couple of days. I guess by the time this comes out, the first part of the video, the first 10 minutes, more or less, will be done in full, more or less, outside of the opening animation, which I'll have in the beginning. Um, but yeah, that's just how it's going to be, so... Every month I'll be discussing it, I guess, how, how the production is going and releasing it bit by bit. That's really the main thing I'll be doing on Patreon. Well, I encourage our readers to, to, to contribute because I think you're really doing amazing work. I personally can't wait to see it. Um, if only just to like grade, grade us against what you're doing. And I'm, <laughs> I'm certain your research is much more in depth than, than what we did. And we, and we did a lot of research because I've, I've been very particular with this one. So here's, um, here's what I learned from the, the con video is, um, a lot of the referencing on it was all over the place when I eventually released the video. So there's like a huge list of references, but they're not in order. And for me going back and trying to figure out where something's from is a nightmare. So like, if I have to like pre-reference something so like if i'm like oh okay what was that thing concert here or was there an interview with a certain person that i need to find it again it's like i have to meld through tons and tons of um references that aren't in aren't in order so with later videos i order my references now with numerically numerically so mm-hmm. on screen there will be a number and that will be the source so it's better for me when i need to go through my research again to find it and better for the audience if they want to actually see where this stuff is coming from so I've got 40 in order currently, but there's probably like 100 or so in the document. But yeah, the first 20 minutes-ish, 20 to 28 minutes, it's hard for me to tell how long it's going to be. Everything up to Royal Space Force, the ending of that, which isn't something Con directed, but he worked on, and it's all 
birth of Gynax. That's 40 references so far. And I'm just writing up the Gunbuster section now, which is maybe another 10 or 11 or so. Who knows? Some of it might be stuff already referenced beforehand, so I'd have to figure that out. But The gauntlet is thrown. I'm going to have to up-level my researching once again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I want to say thanks for for helping us out, both by helping inspire the uh, the research Mm. process for for this very podcast and for then contributing your own voice and thoughts for this episode. Uh, And as Joseph said... Please check out the YouTube channel. Check out the Patreon if you like it. Yeah, I'm sure and, there'll be uh, some links or something. Maybe you can. I don't know how this works, but maybe you can hyperlink them somewhere. <laughs> that probably we make will. It easier for people. We we I do put a note section out. We will yeah. all of that will be there in your uh, Spotify app if you scroll down, in your Apple Podcasts app if you scroll down. Um, if you still can't find it, uh, don't, don't DM about- me. <laughs> Stay maybe away you can send them a me. pigeon or something. You know, I don't know. Smoke signals. I don't know. Semaphore, sure. <laughs> Put or him into perhaps, a little um, a capsule. Load that capsule into yeah. a bazooka and just aim yeah. generally in your direction. You never know; that might work. Or we'll send you a cryptic message in your sleep. And until then, oh. sweet dreams, everyone. That's a good one. That's very Twin Peaksian. 